Hi, this is Mark Yuskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMM, and welcome to the MMM Marketers at Home podcast, where we explore how marketers are adjusting to the altered promotional landscape. On today's episode, we're revisiting the diagnostics area and honing in on a really great communications case study. But before I introduce our guests, travel back with me, if you will, about 12 months. It's March 2020. We're at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. is woefully behind in mass deployment of tests to detect coronavirus, determine its spread, and isolate hotspots. Part of the problem isn't just that there aren't enough tests available, but that it can take a long time to get results. Many of us witnessed that scenario firsthand when trying to get ourselves or a loved one tested. I know I did. Enter test maker Cepheid. Cepheid's SARS-CoV-2 test was authorized by the FDA for emergency use on March 23, 2020, and launched in 50 days. Quite a significant feat, especially given the abysmal situation the country was in at the time. And from the time of the EUA to the first customer was about 10 days. It detects SARS-CoV-2 virus while operating on any of Cepheid's gene expert systems worldwide with a detection time of approximately 45 minutes. Even amid what's become an increasingly crowded field for coronavirus tests, the company continues to see demand outstrip supply for its SARS-CoV-2 diagnostic. Here to talk about the launcher, Jason Spark, who's managing director at Canali Communications, and his client, Jared Tipton, executive director of corporate communications at Cepheid. Gentlemen, welcome to the MMM Marketers at Home podcast. Hey, thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Hey, Mark. Glad to be here, too. Great, great. We're uh, thrilled to have you both. Uh, but first, a few housekeeping items, uh, as we usually do on this podcast. First, our spring conference, MMM Transform Navigating the Next, is coming up May 4th through the 6th. It's free to register online at uh, mmm-transform.com, uh, where you can also see the full agenda. And uh, on Thursday, April 1st, we taped the pre-conference webcast during which GlaxoSmithKline's Allison Wu, who's one of the real experts in pharma's nascent use of social media, gave a terrific talk and sneak peek of what she'll be discussing on May 4th. So you can access the replay online. Uh, and also the MMM Awards, now in their 18th year, are open for nominations. The first deadline is coming up April 21. And as that deadline approaches, we taped our annual awards uncovered webcast a couple of weeks ago. If you missed that, check out the on-demand replay for tips and how-tos for crafting award-winning entries from two veteran jurors uh, at mmm-awards.com. And as always, you can find out more about these events at the all-new mmm-online.com. Okay, back to the interview with Jason and Jared. Um, again, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. I uh, just thought I'd get started here by having you, first of all, tell us about yourselves, a bit about, about your backgrounds, and how long you've been working together. Yeah, I'll start with that, Mark. Uh, yeah, I'm Jason. I'm a managing director at Canali Communications. I've been doing life sciences communications for over 20 years now, and uh, I've been working and partnering with Jared and Cepheid uh, for several projects now going back to 2006. Yeah, we've we've worked together for quite some time. I, I'm in my 18th year with the company. I kind of can't believe it. Feels like I'm a dinosaur uh, at the company, but it's been quite a journey um, joining the company when it was very, very small uh, back in 2003 and, and seeing where it's at today. So it's been a, a very um, educational and fun journey. I'm sure it has. And when it comes to outbreak responses, uh, Jared, this isn't Cepheid's first rodeo, right? T talk about the company's history in this area. Yeah, you know, got to you know, lay the foundation here that the company started with the idea of, of simplifying and automating, you know, DNA, RNA, molecular testing, um, which used to take 
three to four laboratories and multiple days, if not weeks, to perform. Our first test system was the partially automated smart cycler system. You really don't hear much about that anymore because our current system is the fully automated gene expert system, which you mentioned. The company really started gaining some visibility uh, following the anthrax attacks in 2001, where our gene expert system was deployed to help test all the USPS mail for anthrax. And in fact, today, uh, those systems are still hard at work testing every piece of mail that goes through the USPS for anthrax. Um, of course, we then got focused onto our clinical applications, which is you know what the company was founded on. And uh, um, we developed a series of tests to help fight hospital-associated infections, uh, HIV, tuberculosis, and the multiple Ebola outbreaks that we've seen, um, including uh, multiple strains of flu, and now obviously on to COVID-19. Yeah, quite quite a background there. Um, and uh, you know, Cepheid received EUA for the Bedside Expert Express SARS-CoV-2 test at the very beginning of the pandemic in March. And this is a molecular test, so it's highly accurate. At the time, it was the 13th COVID test allowed on the market by the FDA, and the first that clinicians could use at the bedside which represented vital progress to the national testing effort. And you launched it in 50, 50 days. How did you do it so quickly? You know, um, yeah, as you mentioned, this was the first molecular test that could be run uh, near patient. And um, 50 days, pretty remarkable. Um, you know, it really goes to the fact that we've got a very skilled and experienced team here at Cepheid. As you mentioned previously, not our first rodeo. We also have a very established footprint. The Gene Expert system has been around for a while. Uh, it's installed in many hospitals. So that made test deployment much, much easier. From a marketing standpoint, we had to move really quick. You said 50 days. Yeah, well, that's not very long once you start getting visibility into when you know the EUA might be coming. Um, and we quickly developed a series of, of tools to help manage the drastic increase in interest we thought we would see, which turned out to be the case. A couple of things. One thing is we stress tested the website because this was a lesson we had learned from a Discovery Channel partnership we'd done years ago to ensure that our website would not go down. I mean, we had no idea what the level of, of traffic would be, but uh, that, that proved to be an important step. The whole I, I guess you'd call our, our launch strategy, our campaign was revolving around a landing page, a resource page within our uh, website that we could easily point people to. Cepheid.com slash coronavirus. You know, just point everybody there. And it included video material for the press, for customers, the general public. Obviously, video plays a big role today. And for me, it's really key to have cost-effective partners as well as some in-house muscle to be able to produce those things quickly and, and efficiently. You know, Jason pointed out as we pulled together video content, Jason looked at what we were doing and he said, you know, I think what we're missing here is a piece that can show high level how the test is run. Uh, I think this will be of interest to the general public and the media, really important because we're a you know, you could call it a biotechy company, and and sometimes our stuff is a little too scientific. And in credit to him, that turned out to be a really important storytelling device. Um, of course, we had package inserts, FAQs, webinars, and and all that kind of stuff as well. 
I'll add in there too. I mean, for sharing credit, uh, a lot of credit to Jared and the Cepheid team because they they have this tremendous you know video capability through partners and in house, so they can they're pretty nimble and quick in putting these materials together. When we got involved, I, I did have that observation. It's like, look, we're gonna we're gonna be exposed to a, a, a new audience here, a mainstream audience that's gonna need to understand how this works. So how can we simplify that story? And uh, you know, the team worked pretty quickly to put that together. Uh, uh, for the web page. Yeah, yeah. So those digital and video assets were a real workhorse for you. Um, you know, in a situation like that of 2020 and 2021, when demand for tests far exceeds supply, you can't always provide all the tests a hospital wants. So you had to basically ration it, uh, from what I understand. And I'd imagine that caused a little bit of tension in your relationships with hospitals and labs uh, who probably found it frustrating. How did they react? Yeah, well, that's a good one, Mark. And I, I, I chuckle a little bit about that because uh, ration sounds like we were holding tests back and that was absolutely not the case. Nothing was held back. These these tests were were shipped uh, as almost as fast as they were made. It was just, a, a, you know, that the current environment we're in. But but you're right in that, you know, allocation of medical supplies of any kind at this time, you know, over the past year, that's been a tough job. I certainly don't envy the person in charge of allocation for any medical supply. Uh, but, but for us, uh, the key here was setting expectations in, in all of our communications, uh, particularly with customers. You know, just every customer uh, uh, needed, not just wanted, they, they needed more tests than any manufacturer could possibly provide. Uh, so it's just important for us to, to work closely with all of them, be open to what we could do, what we could not do. Um, and, and just, you know, that was we wanted that to be a big part of our communications. That's exactly right. That transparent approach was that was a key for us out of the gate is let's be honest with what we can and cannot do. Everyone needed more, as you mentioned, you know, more tests, more PPE, more supplies in general. Uh, there's desperation out there uh, to, for people to help their patients. And I, I, you can't blame them for, for exploring any and all angles to get some relief uh, of any kind. Um, but really our belief is that this, transparent approach, this kind of um, partnership with our customers, um, fighting through some of those, you know, rough times with them hand in hand, so to speak, is was instrumental. And, you know, in our net promoter score actually going up over 2020, I we were shocked by that because intuitively you would say with all these added stressors, all of the angst out there and the worry, um, that's got to go down. But I think that being open, people appreciate that. They appreciate being transparent. Look, you tell me that I ordered 500 tests and 100 are going to show up. Okay, I don't like it, but at least uh, you're being honest with us. Um, and from the beginning, as Jason mentioned, you know, our manufacturing uh, facilities w went 24-7. And we've put huge investments. We've got more uh, manufacturing sites coming online this year. So they've never stopped going. Nevertheless, I understand that some of them got creative when angling for more tests and applying pressure on you as a manufacturer in unique ways. Can you share some of that with us? Well, again, I, I don't blame whether they, you know, contacted their local uh, or state, you know, government official, uh, whether they took to, you know, calling us on the phone directly, working their way up the chain, going on social media. It, you know, I had any, any and all tactics, you know, as the pandemic eases and, you know, knock on wood, that you look back, it's it's easy to forget just how stressful those times were. And we don't blame 
anybody uh, for doing what they needed to do on behalf of their patients. Sure, sure. And and those, you know, tense situations, if you will, led to some strategic communications. Um, and for a company that was a little media shy, this thrust you into the limelight. Talk about the communications plan and how it enabled you to stay ahead of the news cycle, manage inbound and outbound comms with the public and HCPs and labs, as well as your own reputation. How did, how did you manage through all that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that was a challenge. So typical launches yeah, have months of preparation, you know, you know that, but for Cephid, we had just maybe a few weeks of runway to get ready for this. So there is an intense ramp up period for this. Uh, you know, Cephid, we talked about this a little while ago, Cephid was just thrust into mainstream media like never before needed to prepare for an audience that we weren't, you know, that Cephid wasn't accustomed to. And, and we just had to simplify the story. But in terms of our approach, uh, we took a, a crisis communications approach to this one, you know, rather than that traditional marketing launch approach. And, you know, we all know those guiding principles, you know, be first, be right, be credible, you know, so that, that was, those were our underlying principles. And, and I think that really helped us going forward and in, in, in thinking about how to, you know, prepare for this onslaught of attention that was coming. One of the things that I told our team, um, you know, when this all started and we were getting going was that we were going to get some major media opportunities that a PR professional would dream of. And we're going to have to turn them down, you know, and that's an incredibly hard thing to do. We just couldn't take them all. We had to be selective uh, and train ourselves for that. But, uh, you know, a couple of reasons for that. One of those is we have this gem of a spokesperson in uh, Safiad's uh, chief technology and chief medical officer, David Persing. He's a, you know, one of the world's most renowned resources in, in rapid PCR testing and uh, infectious disease outbreaks. But that also makes them one of the most you know, sought after people uh, you know, in this time. So we, we, we had a limitation on what we can do with him from a PR and media communication standpoint. That brings us to the solution where we really focused our program on. And that, you know, Jared mentioned this earlier, that was really focusing on the digital presence, putting as, as many resources as we thought was necessary onto that coronavirus page. And uh, you know, we knew that was going to be important at the beginning. We didn't know how important that was going to be until it actually happened. But it was, it was it turned out to be a really good move. Um, so, you know, credit to, to Cepheid for having started to build that web presence pre-launch. There wasn't really a model or template for that before. Yeah, um, it was such a shift from our typical, mar you know, launch strategy. There was really no playbook for it. And that's why having, you know, Canali on board and Jason as part of the team helped us to kind of see things differently. And um being able to provide information for audiences that we weren't used to, you know, communicating with. That was a big one for us. For instance, uh, the, the actual launch happened on a Saturday. So it was a Saturday and it was, you know, all hands on deck, obviously. And we saw our, um, our website get a hundred thousand page views that day, which for us, that's just like, you know, on a, on a weekend, on a Saturday, that's a lot. If you're Amazon, that's nothing. But for Cepheid, you know, diagnostic company, that's that's quite a few. And, you know, you, met, you mentioned, uh, Jared, that uh, there was an expansion, the number of stakeholders that you had to communicate with. So you had to deal with that. And so you, you had to kind of be very selective in, you know, which communications opportunities you, you jumped on. I'm just curious, what was the biggest question the media had for you? And how, has that changed over time as reporters have become more familiar with the testing market? Yeah, well, that's an easy one for us. I think that the biggest question we got was how many tests have you shipped? 
got that time, <laughs> yeah. especially in the early days. And we, you know, in the early days, we tried to provide estimates, you know, to, to show that the, the, the efforts were ramping up, that the, you know, that the distribution allocation was increasing. But we quickly realized in the end that it didn't matter what number we provided or, or gave; it just wasn't going to be enough. So we, we had to, you know, um, you know, quickly pivot and, and and focus our communications on how the test works, the best ways to use the test, what are the right settings and scenarios to use it, and leave it at that. What communications tactics or tools work best for you, and you know what went well, um, you know maybe what didn't go so well. I'll jump in on that one because you know as. I think we've hit this one to death. The, the web page was a was a biggie for us having that resource there. We saw our traffic overall. Uh, you know, I mentioned the page views on day one, but the first three months, you know, it was in excess of four hundred percent of of traffic on our website. We partnered with some podcasters, uh, which drove about two hundred thousand YouTube and Facebook views uh, for material there. I, I talked about the videos. We saw over half a million views on our COVID-related videos. We came out with a with a video strategy. We knew the hunger for information, just the thirst seemed like it just was, you know, never ending. And so we thought, okay, let's let's get a video out per week, at least in the in the first four to six weeks. Uh, CMO updates, how to use the test, how we make a test, marketing launch materials, etc. And then the media really actually leveraged a lot of that video. That was kind of, we, we thought it would be viewed. We didn't know it'd be leveraged in the way it, and maybe Jason, you can talk to that because they really grabbed that, that stuff and used it. They did, you, you know, and you know, we had this statistic that we captured and after looking back on all of this, but saw that uh, 200 regional TV markets use clips from our YouTube channels. You know, again, we 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 knew we needed this resource to help us out. We couldn't handle all the all the inquiries that would come in, um, so we directed them to this all the traffic to this page. You know, in a in a courteous way, like you know, we'll get back to you with the information as soon as we can. But here's some information to help you if you need it right away. And they could go to that page. They can get the video clips. They can get sound bites from our from Dave Persing, our our, our spokesperson, and and pull down some clips they can use for their video segments. It was great. Uh, and then one other thing I'd add on that too, and, and we mentioned the news cycles earlier, we thought about how the news cycles would change and rap and how rapidly they would change. And that was part of the crisis communications mindset. You know, the honeymoon was over pretty quick after they, we received the EUA, you know, the emergency use authorization. Everybody's, you know, darling at that time, after a few days, you know, how many tests, when do I get the tests? How soon can I get them? Right. And we, we anticipated that and we prepared for it. And so, you know, again, being nimble with the content and being able to, to provide video quickly, um, you, you know, we had that strategy to put new content out almost on a weekly basis. And I think that really helped in the early days too. Yeah, the the I have a note here um, that we took over 2000 press inquiries in the uh, first few weeks, uh, well, no, first few days, I'm sorry, first few days of the, of the launch. And, uh, there was, even if we hear you mentioned we're, we're media shy as a whole, and that's true. And Jason touched on that. But even if we had taken every opportunity, there's no way we could have fielded those in an appropriate manner to have given interviews and that kind of stuff. Yet we were getting all kinds of folks saying, you know, oh, I saw Dave Persing on my local news or, oh, I saw him because of those video clips that were that offered enough sound bites and, and content that it 
solved the issue. A lot of the press, we would just field the inquiry, send them to the resource page, and they pulled down what they needed and moved on because they were just filing stories left and right. Sure, sure. And I would imagine, you know, as, as Jason said, you know, where are the tests and why can't you manufacture more was the main, you know, question you were getting. I would imagine this was similar to what the vaccine makers were experiencing a few months ago, you know, prior to ramping up production. What, what didn't work so well? Well, yeah, Mark, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what didn't work. We did have a lot of things that worked well, but, uh, you know, this was new territory for us. We did take some big swings. Um, but, yeah, a few things that I'd say didn't quite pan out. Uh, you know, one was opinion editorials. Uh, they Those just took off. Uh, everybody had an opinion. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no shortage of those. Um, so there's a lot of competition for that. I also noticed that those opinions became more and more provocative. And we just decided from a time you know, commitment standpoint, we better step away from this. Uh, the other one was uh, documentaries. Uh, we looked into, and this is based on Cepheid's video capability. Like, how do we how do we really build on that? So let's look at some longer form documentary type pieces we can do instead of some of the shorter videos. And uh, I still think it's a great idea, but you know, a couple things: the news cycles changed so fast for long form media like that that it was difficult to put that sort of time and investment into something um, that could be outdated. We didn't know what the future held. Yeah, that was documentaries. We also looked at product placements on hospital TV programs. This was kind of a fun idea that that our, our media team had, and you know, really looked into this. Uh, you know, how cool would that be to to be on the the, the season opener uh, for Grey's Anatomy? Right. And have Seattle Gray's uh, running a gene expert to get, you know, get their workflows back in order during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I still think that's a great idea, too, that the challenge with it just at the time, I mean, the, the production sets were still trying to figure out how to get their staff back back to work. So uh, just timing wise, everything was happening so fast. Uh, it didn't quite work out, but uh, no shortage of ideas. Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing some of the things that, that maybe got left on the cutting room floor, as it were. That's right. Was circling back to the earlier point about you know the big expansion and the splintering and the number of people that you had to communicate with and the questions that were coming in, was there a, a media op that you did take that maybe took you out of your comfort zone a little bit, but that you're, but you're really glad that you did it because maybe it sort of reached a really wide audience and, and an audience that you um, might not have reached before, but one that you, you really got a lot of mileage out of, let's say. I don't know if there was any that we took that we were glad that we did. There were definitely ones we took we didn't take that we were glad we didn't. And uh, <laughs> maybe there were a few missed opportunities along the way where you look back and say, you know, that could have been a good one. But I think our feeling is the the negative, the potential negative outweighs the positive sometimes, especially when things are as politically charged as they were at the time. So. I, I think there's a couple where it was pitched, an interview was pitched one way, and then we get into the interview and midway through the gotcha question comes up about, you know, test volumes or whatever, which we, again, Jason said, we were kind of trying to step away from. So I don't know, Jason, I had, does that kind of follow along with your line of thinking there? We we chose to just take a limited approach to broadcast media opportunities because of the live nature of the programming and uh, some of the questions that could come up and, and just making sure that we were uh, comfortable um, handling potential questions uh, in a real-time environment. Um, for the most part, we, we pushed ourselves and we pushed Sephia to take some uh, print interview uh, opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have taken uh, in the past. And I think that did work out pretty well for us. It was a, 
environment that we were able to prepare for and, and get the team ready for. But from a broadcast opportunity standpoint, one was just logistics, getting somebody available, get fast enough to be able to, to accommodate that was, was one issue. But you know, there, there is some reservations about the live nature of, of the interview on a, a very hot topic like this. Sure. And I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, as Jason put it, you know, the crisis comes fundamentals of be right, sorry, be first, be right, and be credible really kind of uh, guided you through this. Um, but during a year when wearing a mask became a political statement, how did Sefiyad keep from becoming a political football? Yeah, well, we decided early on that we didn't want publicity if it was motivated by politics. And the best way to help customers was to to focus on helping them access and deploy tests efficiently. We just didn't want the distraction from, you know, the becoming a political football, as you said, Mark. So, you know, there were opportunities to make a big splash with press events at press events with elected officials. And we just opted to focus on communications opportunities to allow us to show how the system worked instead. And, you know, and, and we did so in a nonpartisan way. I have to give a lot of credit to the government affairs team at Cepheid uh, for handling those relationships as well as they did. Um, now, the, just switching gears for a moment here, the FDA has authorized more than 300 coronavirus tests and technologies in what's becoming an increasingly crowded field of medical lab and tech firms touting different technologies. And I believe that includes 38 molecular authorizations that can be used with home collected samples. Um, you know, just this week, the FDA approved two more at home rapid COVID-19 tests. How do you expect uh, this to impact demand for your bedside test? Yeah, good, good question. You know, uh, I think you you've mentioned that, um, Mark, that we're still challenged today with, you know, demand outstripping supply that hasn't changed. You know, our, our test is really intended for symptomatic patients, you know, where reliable test results are critical in driving that those patient management decisions. One of the challenges in our communications program um, really was making sure that folks understand the various settings in which the gene expert can be used. And, and it's really, it is a clinical test right now. It's not an at-home test. So, you know, our, our architecture is such a departure. The fact that you can have uh, many, many modules in a system to be able to handle large volumes of tests, or you can, you know, you said bedside, but near patient, you can have, you know, two or four modules in like a nursing home or, you know, at a, at a drive through clinic where they're testing for COVID. That's, that's kind of the, the, the difference there for us. Uh, your, your product was approved for emergency use. From a life cycle perspective, how have you evolved it? Yeah, we, we didn't waste a whole lot of time. We, we moved pretty quick because we could, we could see uh, the flu season coming and really we're almost thinking about the next flu season um, uh, as as PPE restrictions or, or so forth kind of relax and folks stop thinking about this, uh, you know, we had almost zero flu this last year. So we we expect the flu to come back and be um, be a factor. So we produced a uh, about six months later, we came out with a fourplex test that detects four respiratory viruses from a single sample. We're talking about flu A, flu B, SARS-CoV-2, and RSV, which is respiratory essential uh, virus. And um, the, the key here is that those are four viruses that kind of present very similar, right, but have very different patient management pathways. So um, I think 
as we get through this pandemic and then the next season where there'll still be SARS-CoV-2 testing and still be, there's going to be flu that's going to come back. Uh, that's going to be really, really important. So that was our next uh, evolution is kind of the four in one test. Okay. Oh, just one more question. I'll let you gentlemen go here. When we said earlier that, um, you know, marketing had become sort of more about customer relations, you know, than expanding the market, uh, that doesn't mean that you're not looking to kind of grow the market for the product. You know, sports teams, for instance, need a rapid testing solution. Just wondering how has the definition of your core customer or audience changed? It has changed. It's tra- the market has transformed that that's clear. And everybody is kind of almost reevaluating and resetting the, you know, kind of what the future landscape might look like. Um, we, uh, we are definitely going to explore some non-healthcare alternate site setting applications. Um, but really for now, our, our core, you know, customer base of, of hospitals and uh, closer to patient testing and clinics and so forth, the strategy kind of remains for that with the added focus. I think the big takeaway for everyone was, was, uh, pandemic preparedness. This is not going to be the only pandemic. So having the ability to quickly flex test capacity, I think you're going to see more and more folks preparing for that and being able to say, we can expand our testing quickly to handle large volumes and just the day-to-day volumes. You touched on sports teams, which is interesting too. I mean, without naming names, there were professional sports leagues and large corporations that among the, the leaders to shut down a year ago. I mean, we had all sorts of ideas, right? This is kind of the, 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 the creative part of this project and thinking like how great it would be to help them get back, right? Some of those organizations get back uh, to work. You know, it did cross our mind. Uh, and we do have, Cephid has a great solution for that. But, you know, at the end of the day, just had to keep the customer base at hospitals in focus, right? They're on the front lines of this pandemic. They need the help. They need the resources. We can't, you know, have our attention divided. So, you know, there'll be opportunities to explore those non-healthcare settings that Jared was talking about in the future. And, and I think we're in a really good position to do that. Okay. To that end, let's do this again as that post-pandemic landscape becomes more clear. Absolutely. Sounds fun. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm going to leave it there. That was Jason Spark and Jared Tipton. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. Really appreciated it. Hey, thanks for having us. This was great. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure is all mine. And thank you, everybody out there for listening. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please give it a like. And please subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you get your audio programming, whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And uh, this has been Mark Iskowitz for the MMNM Marketers at Home podcast. See you next time, everybody. Take care.